Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the city, the province, the country coming to terms with the stabbing death of a 14-year-old boy at Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School. Climate change barely made the top five issues at the beginning of this election campaign. It's now bumped up to number two. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, as I mentioned, uh, just her horrific uh, uh, news coming out this week in regard to uh, what has happened at uh, Sir Winston Churchill School. Um, the latest report is the two extra people that were arrested, uh, the two 16-year-olds, have been released. Uh, still the initial 14- and 18-year-old uh, charged with first-degree murder. Uh, the school trying to come to grips with all of this, the community, the province, the country. Uh, and again, it's um, we have this discussion when it comes to guns uh, in this country and and controlling them and keeping the public safe. But, you know, is it the weapon or do we have to dig a little deeper in this discussion? Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Uh, Caddy Cam- Camcar, psychologist with Cam H, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we talk so much, Caddy, about um, weaponry and banning guns and this and that, and obviously that is a major discussion that has to be had. Uh, however, you know, here's a scenario where this poor 14-year-old boy is is stabbed to death. Uh, is it about the weaponry, or why are kids killing kids? I think that here, you know, first of all, as you mentioned, it's a such such a devastating news, um, really for everyone, um, as you said, uh, for the community and pr- province and nationally as well. Um, and, and as you said, everyone really feels impacted. This is an important question, and I think that um, it does demand a very well-informed and uh, comprehensive um, understanding and response to it. Uh, nevertheless, um, very important to take um, uh, proactive, proactive measures in regards to what, what can we do in terms of uh, prevention and definitely um, early intervention. Uh, there was talk, there is talk that uh, the, the student was bullied. Again, we don't want to start assuming things. We don't know all the details at this point. Um, how, do you, how do you address that? What, what, what do we have to do? Uh, it seems we're talking about this sort of thing more, uh, but are we necessarily doing anything about it? Well, there is obviously um, this situation is such so devastating. There are several layers to address. First of all, how can we prevent this in the future? How can we um, how can we reassess the situation for proactive strategy moving forward? And of course, here um, definitely the psychological impact um, because we do know um, that everyone has been impacted, and there were also many witnesses. So everyone has been impacted either directly or indirectly. And so here we're talking about this exposure to trauma, and it's also significant loss and grief. And when we talk about grief, it's, it's an interpersonal trauma. Um, and, and so, of course, initially, very normal uh, reactions do occur in terms of variety of emotions that we can go through, uh, sadness, anger, anxiety, feeling agitated, feeling on edge. Uh, we can also have maybe nightmares, maybe there are some 
areas that we want to avoid because we feel anxious, so they create a lot of distress. Um, we might want to, again, withdraw from our normal structure, structure routine, uh, or day-to-day activities or responsibilities, changes in our appetite and sleep, and also distressing memories, intrusive memories about the details of the trauma and all the occurrence. So very important to know those are very, very normal reactions. And at this point here, as we always say, continuous self-care is important. Graduate, a very graduated uh, uh, activities that we are able to set every day and, of course, some um, structure and routine, quality social support. Now, here sometimes people say, you know what, I really want to be alone. I need to recharge my batteries. And that's fine. I think that what's, in, what's helpful is when we are able to establish on a continuum a balance, a balance between, all right, I need to take my break here to stay alone, to reprocess what has happening, and at the same time, the importance of also seeking quality uh, support so that we do not go into that self-isolation mode. And of course, if over time we feel that the symptoms increase, create more distress, and or interfere with our functioning such that, let's say here, this is in high school, we're talking about difficulty maybe going to high school, difficulty functioning inside the high school. It could be problems with our academic functioning. We need to seek help. You bring up a a valid point here, Caddy. You know, we're talking about a 14-year-old kid here. I saw a clip on the news where um, they're talking to a classmate and he was saying how uh, unusual it's going to be sitting there with an empty seat beside him. Um, If you're 14 years old, how do you deal with this. Yes, you see, it's an important question, right? And I think we're always going to have that question. We're always going to have that question. And I think that here is really to acknowledge that there is this loss, there is a grief, and um, the, we're going to go through a variety of reactions, no more reactions. We, everyone will process it differently. Um, but often what we see is that when it's the community also being impacted, when the community is able to come together, there's a sense of connection, this togetherness, um, it, it can become tremendously helpful and healthy in that regard. And sometimes what we see is a lot of proactive growth and learning. Um, People learn about themselves. People learn about being with others. Um, The sense of uh, what we call, uh, you know, being together, um, being caring and kind towards one another and towards ourselves. So there's a lot of healing and growth that also takes place following such, such traumatic event um, in a community. And, you know, going back once again to your question, how do we deal with that? And one thing we know is the more intense traumas are, uh, severe they are, the more we ask why and how and why and how. Mm. And these are the cases where we are least likely to actually find an answer. Mm. What about fear of uh, other students being fearful now? That's very normal, absolutely. So variety of emotions. So as you mentioned, fear, feeling afraid, and people could be afraid for a variety of reasons. When we are impacted by trauma, directly or indirectly, people can also process 
and exhibit fear, but very differently. Sometimes it could be fear for our own safety, or sometimes it could be for fear for safety of others, or it could be that we might feel kind of overly, excessively jumpy with any noise um, or any bang we might hear, or a sense of hypervigilance, so constantly being on guard for any signs of threat or danger. So we might experience fear in a different way, but at the same time, here as we just talked about, a variety of other uh, superimposed. Well, let me ask you about this, Caddy. What about guilt? What about, because there is there are allegations of bullying here, what about guilt from other students thinking, man, maybe I should have done more? So, so exactly, right? So I was going to mention exactly, right? So variety of other emotions that we go through, uh, the grief and loss, uh, it could be the guilt, sometimes it could be the shame, sometimes it could be embarrassment, sometimes. So variety of variety of emotions that we're going to go through. And you're right, because following traumas, um, it does shatter our belief system about ourselves, about others. It could lead to blaming others. It could be blaming ourselves. Could I have done differently? I should have done differently. So we might reevaluate the situation, examine the situation. Sometimes it could lead to, again, ruminating over the situation. So a variety of those um, uh, cognitive kind of thought processes and emotional processes that we're going to go through. So very important to seek um, to seek quality social support. And of course, when needed professional help, absolutely devastating, uh, devastating event. Dr. Caddy Kamkar with us, psychologist with CAMH. Doctor, thanks for the uh, time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. All right. You're more than welcome. Thanks for the advice. Uh, Everybody just wondering what to do, what to think, what to feel at this point. Let's bring in Manny Figueredo, Director of Education at the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, and he is with us now. Manny, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're welcome, Scott. First of all, uh, condolences to uh, from all of us to anybody there that's experiencing this within uh, your system. I, I, I can only imagine how uh, how traumatic this must all be. Describe the mood. Describe what it's like at the uh, in the neighborhood, in the community, in the school. Well, first of all, as difficult as it is for us, I can only imagine how difficult it is for the immediate family and the mother and family and, and siblings. Uh, in terms of mood, I um, spent the day there yesterday and um, spent some time there morning um, because we, you know, we debated, you know, school being open. And um, so we decided that the best place for our kids to be is to be in school because that's where we're going to have the greatest number of caring adults and supports. Mm. So yesterday and today and into next week, we, we brought our crisis response intervention team. We have social workers, uh, additional social workers on hand. We have our police liaison officers being present. We've brought an extra um, staff to be, just to be present because we're also dealing with not just the range of emotions from students, mm. but also staff who are trying to make sense of this uh, senseless act of violence. And be strong in front of the students, obviously. Yeah, so what we, yes, but we've said that, you know, it's important during this time to listen to everyone. Yeah. And and this could be a trigger for many um some staff members or, st- yeah. or students who've lost loved yeah. ones. And we have to, not just this week as we deal with the grief, but the weeks ahead, we have to observe if there's any change in behaviors because, you know, um, people might still be in shock and then reality hits in a week or two weeks ago. And what I'm speaking to kids yesterday, you know, I heard a range of some of them saying, yeah, I, I'm still sort of afraid or I'm sad, I'm angry. Um, and some are saying, I, I feel a little bit of guilt because, I really didn't know him, and I'm seeing other people feeling sad. Should I feel sadder than I really am? Like you said, there's no right way to feel. What's important is that 
we come together and the supports are here to talk about it. You know, and you bring up a valid point, and I think it's a great idea to have kept the school open as well, Manny. Uh, you know, it's a tough age. Kids don't know what to feel. It, it is. It's, it's a very difficult age. And um, what, we've, what I observed yesterday is that students wanted to be together. There are some yeah. students who wanted to be alone, and we provided uh, quiet spaces where they could sit with the counselor just to talk. And I saw today the football team who said, we want some sense of normalcy. We want to let people know that we're not going to, you know, stop um, our normal living behavior because of this act of violence. We want the football game to go on Thursday, and we're going to raise money for uh, Devin's um, funeral. So they want to use the opportunity mm. uh, to raise money. So you're seeing the range of, of emotions from uh, from our student population. So uh, at the school today, is it class as normal as as much as it can be, or is it just pretty much open discussion on this? Well, Scott, t- today I, um, the data is telling me that the attendance is uh, like it was um, back to normal prior to it. So yesterday our attendance was a, a little lower, yeah. but today our attendance was back to normal. So that gave me an indication that students wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. Again, we have the range of supports. They're going to continue to be there this week and next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're asking our teachers as they're dealing with their own emotions, to take the lead of their class, right? To take the lead of the, uh, of the class in sure. terms of um, how kids want to proceed. But we're seeing a range of kids want to proceed with their learning because that's how they're coping. Mm-hmm. And others are saying, can I go just talk to the counselor for a little bit, one-to-one? Um, so, so we're seeing a, a range of that. And some teachers are, are the ones being the support for the kids. So we have extra supply teachers in the school who are covering the class for the teacher who might be working with a small group of kids. Mm. Uh, well, good luck to you, Manny. We're all thinking about the school, the community, and of course the family and the tragic loss uh, and and trying to get through all of this. And again, good luck to you and the staff. Uh, it, it appears like you're on the right the right track and at least doing whatever whatever seems to be right for the students at this point. Manny Figueredo has been with us, Director of Education, Hamilton Wetworth District School Board. Manny, thanks for the time. Good luck. You're welcome. Thank you. It is 1226. What a horrific situation. My goodness. How do you know? I got a 14 year old boy. How do you deal with this stuff? It's just, um, it's crippling. It's crippling. But um, the students uh, will get through it. The the faculty will get through it. And uh, tragically, the family will have to find a way. Maybe it's time we started looking inward to ourselves and out around and what's going on rather than our devices so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new poll out. There's polling pretty much every day as we get into the last portion of the election. Obviously, uh, many pollsters have said uh, in the last week or so uh, prior to the uh, big debate that was uh, had that uh, hopefully something would break the logjam at the, at the uh, you know, between the liberals and the conservatives and such. I'm not sure that has happened, although some of the issues have changed uh, in their status a bit. Let's bring in Sean Simpson, uh, Sean Simpson of Ipsos. He is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on the debate and it moving the meter. I'm, I'm sure you were one of the pollsters we talked to prior to all of this who, who thought, you know, gee, it'd be nice if something happened here and uh, sort of upset the apple cart a little bit. But has that happened? Well, likely not. Um, 
you know, the, the, there wasn't a knockout punch. Uh, I think clearly uh, Jagmeet Singh was the winner, if there was a winner, um, because uh, our uh, political atlas tool, which allows us to monitor in real time social media conversations uh, throughout the course of the campaign, showed that Jagmeet Singh had positive uh, a net positive impressions on people throughout the course of the campaign, particularly as we got closer to the end. It was not positive for the other leaders. Uh, so are we pretty much in for a neck-and-neck race right till the end, unless, of course, another shoe drops, an explosion, a bomb, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, all, all signs at this particular juncture point to a minority government. I mean, there's still, um, you know, 12 days left to go. Uh, so there, you know, there's a lot of time in, in, in politics. Um, we are, we'll be very curious to know whether or not Singh's debate performance actually translates into votes. If it does, those will largely be coming from the Liberal Party. And so it, it's, a, you know, Singh's performance is a gift to, uh, the Conservatives, uh, whose vote is, is still firm. It's not moving, regardless of what's happening in the campaign, and conservative supporters are the most likely to show up to vote. So uh, talk about, and we, we talked about this uh, uh, a few weeks ago in regard to what were the kitchen table issues, what were mm-hmm. most important in the lives of Canadian voters. That has changed a little bit. Talk about what it was, where it is now. Yeah, so um, where it was is, is well, that healthcare was the number one issue, and that's still where we are. Uh, but the number two issue, and it's really for the first time that I've ever um, I've ever seen it this way, is that climate change is number two. Uh, and uh, at the start of the de- of the uh, campaign, it was number five. A year ago, it wasn't even on the top five. Um, so it's really becoming, I think, the defining issue of the campaign, uh, where um, all the leaders have something to say about it, even if it is Andrew Shear's uh, uh, interpretation of it is about taxation and not actually the environment. Uh, we remember a lot of the pre uh, pre campaign uh, talk was about climate change. A lot of, uh, especially because it's such a major platform in the prime minister's uh, re-election campaign. So there's a lot of that. And then once the whole blackface issue came out, it seemed to turn more to affordability. Um, so are you surprised to see how affordability and 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 climate change have sort of switched? And how do you explain that? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, it, it is interesting to see what's happening. Um, I, I think the reason why the climate change has moved ahead of affordability is because each of the leaders has a story to tell. It's really one of the only issues where the parties are are differentiated right. um, in a significant way. You know, we've got the Liberal plan here in the middle. We've got the Green Party plan, which is twice as ambitious. We've got the Tory plan, which is not at all ambitious, but it, it it's it's the plan is to scrap taxes um and so each party thinks it's a vote winner for them and thinks that it motivates their their support and so they in turn are motivated to talk about it as they talk about it more canadians pay i think a little bit closer attention to the issue and it moves up in in saliency uh in, in relevance in people's minds and that's why it's now number two we are hearing more and more that uh, millennials will be replacing baby boomers as the largest segment of voters. How can that affect things here? Well, uh, baby, or sorry, millennials can have a, a significant impact. In 2015, Justin Trudeau's majority was delivered by a nearly 20-point increase in voter participation rates among millennials. Uh, so if only people the age 35 and older vote, it's a conservative government very easily. 
the extent to which it's a conservative majority or minority or whether the conservatives form government at all is entirely dependent on whether people under the age of 35 show up and vote. If they do, the liberals could win very easily. If they don't, the Tories will win very easily. So how do you explain the sudden surge in climate uh, in climate change uh, as far as important issues? Uh, obviously, we've seen several protests uh, that have uh, gone from city to city. Uh, also, uh, Greta Th- uh, Thunberg, that, that factor as well. Is that credited with the momentum with climate change? Why is it all of a sudden now surging to the front? Yeah, no, I, I think the contextual uh, situation matters a lot uh, for those reasons that um, uh, that you've described. You know, I think um, uh, parties and leaders need to react to what's going on around them. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the rallies and, and Greta uh, as an external factor, uh, grabbing news attention here in Canada, the rallies in Montreal and, and in, in other places across the country, and the leaders feel they need to respond to that in some way. And so they decide to march or not to march. They decide to uh, talk about the issue more or to play it down. And, and I think what we're finding here is that um, uh, people, uh, the leaders recognize that it, it's an important issue of our day and, uh, and are trying to capitalize on that to their own benefit. Uh, healthcare still number one. Um, oddly enough, it wasn't really covered in the debate other than when leaders brought it up themselves. Uh, are, are politicians addressing this? Yeah, it healthcare is really tough, right? Be, for a couple of reasons. One is that it's very difficult to differentiate yourself on healthcare. Now, a national pharmacare program is is a way to try and 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 do that. But the, the, the second reality, and perhaps even more importantly, is that healthcare is, is largely a provincial jurisdiction. So the, the federal government's role in being a healthcare provider is simply to write checks, essentially. Uh, and, uh, you know, to say, well, I'm going to write, uh, I'm going to increase transfer payments by 7%. You're going to increase them by 6%. I mean, I don't think people really see how that's going to impact their, their own access to health care. And so it's a really, really difficult debate to have. And I think that's why the, the, the consortium that put on the English language debate decided that it wasn't going to be a focal point until Elizabeth May and Jagmeet Singh and others said, well, you know, actually health care is part of the affordability discussion for us. And what we're going to do to address affordability is a national pharmacare program. Uh, where do you see uh, climate change or the number one issue by the time the actual election rolls around? Do you think things will stay put here? Will, uh, will climate change fall on that list? Or do you think it will go higher up and, and, uh, and pass health care as the most important issue? Yeah, well, the trajectory suggests that it could certainly um, battle health care for the number one issue. Health care is still six points ahead of, of climate change. Um, and unless there is some national crisis, a unity crisis, or some other emergency, healthcare is almost always number one, simply because we're an aging population and it's the number one issue for boomers. So I, I'm I'm going to put my money on the bet that it doesn't overtake uh, healthcare uh, and that climate change remains number two. So really, at the end, does this reflect the demographic more than anything? Um, less about what really interests Canadians and more about what interests each demographic. And the fact that climate change is coming up is, is a sign that millennials are having more impact. 
Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and the fact that healthcare is number one is because boomers are, are a large there. demographic still yep. there. We know that for millennials, education, housing, and unemployment is, is a top issue. We know for Gen Xers, affordability and the economy is a top issue. But for baby boomers, it's healthcare by a landslide. Um, and so if baby boomers are going to be the ones that are going out to vote, um, as they've proven they, they have in the past, that politicians are going to spend time addressing the issues that matter the most to them. If millennials are going to stay home, then they will have disproportionately lower influence on the issues that leaders are talking about. It's fascinating that at the beginning of all of this, we were talking about how the Greens were overtaking the NDP in some areas and how and chatter that they may become the, you know, the third uh, uh, protest vote or option for people. Um, will we see the the, uh, the popularity that they have gained over the last few days? Any sign that will translate into votes? And yeah, do so the millennials play a factor in that? Yeah, well, certainly the millennials are, are the most likely group to be supporting the, the, the Green Party. Um, so a couple of things. The, Ipsos had never measured the Green Party over 11%. And when it did, I think the NDP were still at 14 or 15%. Um, other polling firms had the Green Party higher. And I never bought that because the Green Party vote, uh, they were supported by people less likely to show up and less certain of their vote. Now that it's clearly a two-horse race between the Liberals and Conservatives, I think people that were considering the Green Party are saying, you know what, my vote is going to have a greater impact on determining the outcome of the election if I support you know, the Liberals or the Conservatives, essentially, because that's who's leading in, in most ridings. I think that the Green Party will ultimately be disappointed on Election Day. All right. It's fascinating. And we've still got a couple of weeks left to go. Sean Simpson with us, Ipsos. Sean, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Talk to you again soon. All right. We're talking about a new set of polls that are out. And, you know, we talked about tabletop, kitchen table issue, issues uh, at the beginning of all of this and, and what's important and is that being addressed? Uh, is that being addressed by the politicians who are on the campaign trail now? A new Ipsos poll out says healthcare still uh, uh, the top of the uh, top three issues and has been pretty much for most of the election. Uh, then behind that was affordability and cutting taxes. And at the beginning of the campaign, climate change was down as low as five. Now uh, this Ipsos poll is saying just behind healthcare. Uh, climate change among the top three most important issues in determining the vote up four uh, points. To talk more about all of this, Genevieve Tellier is with us, professor, political uh, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. She is with us now. Genevieve, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Scott. Are you surprised at the flip-flop here? When this uh, pre-campaign, it was a lot about climate change, then it kind of stopped. Maybe the, the blackface scandal had something to do with that, and then all of a sudden it got really serious. We were talking about affordability, affordability, affordability. Now it's back to climate change. Your thoughts? Yes, that's kind of surprising. Although at the beginning of the campaign, many observers were saying, well, climate change will be the discussion. That's the new feature in Canada. And with this new generation of voters, the millennium that, they, that is going to vote, that's their main preoccupation. And so, and what we have seen also on the provincial level, and so many elections, we saw new, the Green Party doing very well. Uh, but then uh, when things started, we didn't see that much uh, Elizabeth May and the proposals from the Green Party were not that clear, I would say, or that distinctive. Or um, so, And yes, other, other topic came like the blackface and, and other things. But one important event, I would say, would be the march, the strike on climate that we saw two weeks, three weeks ago. It, are, it, that was my next question. The marches and the Greta factor, how do they play into this? I think they're playing a lot on that. And, uh, you know, uh, you were talking about the kitchen kitchen talks uh, going on now. Uh, it's going to be tense 
Thanksgiving this weekend. Uh, yeah. We, we, so we're gonna <laughs> see we're gonna see children talking to their grandparents uh, about climate change, yeah. and that may be something, maybe an important element, and it may change also the conversation. Another thing also is that uh, on climate change there is a clear divide between the right and the left. Yeah. So between the conservative are alone. Uh, I don't talk about Maxime Bernier, but uh, but even Maxime Bernier yesterday was saying, well, I'm the greenest party. So even him is trying to get in the conversation about climate change. Mm. But let's like just stick at uh, Andrew Scheer. His proposal is very distinct from the other proposal uh, of the other parties. And and that also may be, um, may be a factor. And so when people are going to think about climate change, on the one hand, you have uh, we do nothing and the economy is the priority and jobs and tax cuts. And on the other hand, you have the long-term vision and what do we do for the next 10, 15, 20 years, and then you have the other party that I think are better placed to address those issues. So that may become something important for some voters. So why do you think the sudden shift now? I mean, is it because of, uh, of well-placed uh, demonstrations, well-placed protests in, in, in ahead of a federal election. Has that? Are we giving that sole credit for and and Greta Thunberg for bumping this issue up the way that it has? I think she did present a strong uh, message. Her and the youngest generation saying, uh, "You are failing us," and so by saying that, by saying you don't address the issue, we will suffer from the consequences, and presenting the emergency of the issue that may have help. But another reason for me is that um, if you want to look at the distinction between the parties, between the liberals and the conservatives, that would be the main distinction, I would yeah. say. It's not about affordability. It's not about health care, uh, although a bit, but not that much. Or health care is provincial anyway. Uh, so many similarities among the parties, but on that issue, very distinctive. And so it's funny to see the dynamic that is kind of shifting. So at the beginning of the campaign, it was which party would be the closest at the other one. And so they were saying, you're, you're you are stealing my ideas and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And now we are seeing the parties shifting apart. And so which one is more distinctive and has the best proposal and, and will make a difference in the way the country is governed? Is climate change on its way to number one? Will it be the most important by the election? I think that for some, yes. And so I don't think there will be one issue that will be the, the important one for everybody. And that's what we see. We see uh, fragmentation in this uh, campaign. And so for some, it will be for sure affordability. I mean, housing is an important issue in many sectors of the country, but not everywhere. Uh, and so for climate change, that's the same case. Uh, it's an important issue, but not for everywhere. And we see a clear divide between uh, Eastern Canada and Western Canada. We see a big divide also on that between uh, municipality, urban area, and rural area. And so for some, yes, it's going to be a defining factor, but others will be different. Quebec may be, uh, again, the case of la the laïcité. We'll see how it flies. Uh, elsewhere, it's going to be taxes, affordability, uh, public transit, housing. So there are many, many things that could come in play. Genevieve Tellier with us, Professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Genevieve, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. A pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alyssa Freeman joining us now, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thank you, Scott. Uh, in regard to uh, this latest poll from Ipsos, which says that uh, now um, climate change has moved into the number two spot on the most important issues in determining vote. Healthcare number one at 35 still, 29 climate change up four points, and then 26% uh, affordability in the cost of living, that's down one, and uh, taxes, uh, that's gone up four. Uh, believe it or not, as the most important issues heading into the election. How do you explain the change in climate, uh, in the stance on climate change? Is this due to the protests that we've seen and the Greta factor? Yes, I really have to think that it's really uh, a top of mind. Um, It's sort of a top of mind issue that's pushing this up into the polls. Because, you know, you have to wonder, there's some very basic things that Canadians need to consistently worry about. And obviously taxes, uh, health care, which is almost uh, not even an issue in this election. You know, much of the chagrin of, ma- of uh, many of the um, health care associations uh, around the country. Uh, I do think that when people hear a lot about an issue, I think the Greta factor is huge. She's been getting a lot of play yet. The fact that there's been mass protests. You know, it, it's also, Scott, you have to remember, it's an easy issue for people to understand. Yeah. We're not doing, we're not treating the planet well, so therefore there's a problem. And, you know, you can get into the nitty gritty of why we're not treating the planet well, but for the most part, people get that. And they may get it in their own sense of how they live. Like maybe I'm not recycling enough. Maybe I'm taking the car too much. So there are certain things that people can, you know, change, take small steps um, to do their part. So whenever an issue is not complex to understand, I think that that's one of the reasons that it is gaining in the polls. What about the fact, too, that this is really the only issue that separates the, 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 all of the political parties? They have a, all seem to have a, a stance on this that is different. This is what separates them. Um, you know, it really is. And, and, and that was also a bone of contention in the debates, right? So, you know, people are saying that they felt Cher really didn't have a plan. And the person who has the most, uh, the most prolific plan, of course, is Elizabeth May. But, you know, while she really encompasses that whole plan, you know, I think that we could, well, I personally think that she's weaker in other areas, but you know, that's her and the And sliding in the polls as a result of that uh, lately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that she sees herself just as a way of ensuring that climate is on the agenda. Should she gain uh, any number of seats uh, within the house of Commons? So I really think that that's her MO. I don't think that she has any um, illusions that she's going to become prime minister, but by, I mean, this is really one of uh, uh, the best years yet for the Green Party. Really oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it, and it started last year. You know, when we saw that um, yeah, the change to green uh, in Prince Edward Island. You know, we've seen a number of seats turn green in BC, and those are the two extremes of the country. But as you get further and further into the center, you're not really going to see that. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's interesting how that progressive vote is actually going to split out. Uh, Do you see climate change climbing up the ladder as we get closer to the election, only a couple of weeks out now, or do you see it dropping? Um, And and if you're an activist out there, obviously getting in the public eye prior to the election is an advantage for you. Yes, it is. And I think that anybody who is a climate activist is probably sitting down with their groups and saying, "Okay, so how do we maintain momentum? We have really two weeks out of this year to continue this momentum, which as we get into the winter months will probably die off. So if any of the climate activists are truly, truly 
um, looking to help influence that election, they're coming up strategically with some plans right now. I think that climate is very important. Don't get me wrong. But I also think that Canadians are worried about how many taxes they're going to be, you know, and yeah. what the, what, how much more money is coming out of their pockets. And, and some of that is, is tied in with climate. Um, but it still is top of mind. Is this a reflection of seeing these these stats and these numbers on climate change go up? Is this about um, the awareness of climate change, or is this the fact that um, now as we head into this election, millennials will have a bigger voice than they've ever had, and that's starting to be reflected in policy? I think that millennials are having a bigger voice in every organization that they are involved with, whether it's uh, politically motivated or otherwise. I've seen even through some of my clients that are now changing the way that they present information because they have a membership base that wants to have their voice heard, whereas it was more of a, a one-way um, path of communication. Now it's more of a two-way path of communication. And, and millennials are becoming more active voters rather than apathetic voters. And when Chuck Meetsing came into Toronto yesterday, he was downtown at the Ryerson campus and you know, I mean, he was mobbed. It was selfish yeah. city for him. So I, I think that there is a strong millennial voice. I think that there always has been, Scott, a strong millennial But there really voice. seems to be there really seems to be a push on like all of a sudden we realized, hey, wait a sec, this segment of the population is bigger than the baby boomers for the first time in any election. I thought it was gonna take the next election for that to happen, but apparently we're very close enough now to call it that. Um, so, again, if you're one of those progressive parties, you're going to be hammering at this because basically stats say if millennials want to change the world, this is the time to do it. Yeah, maybe. But also, I think that there's a lot of strategy in how politicians talk to their base. And yes, millennials are very loud. And yes, millennials are um, very active. But are millennials going to decide this election? No. Um, I think that it comes strategically down to pockets of the province that will put a certain party into power. So whether there's millennials in that, in, in that I, yeah. Listen, Scott, I think that they're not going to stop. No politician is going to stop talking about climate change. None of them. It's always going to be part of their narrative. Mm-hmm. Do I think that they think that they need that to win an election? No. I think elections are won strategically by concentrating on pockets where there's a lot of undecided and that there's enough of them that can put you into power. All right, here we are in the time post-debate. Uh, many pollsters were saying they were hoping something would happen during the debate to, to jiggle something loose and either someone would go out ahead. We're still seeing virtual uh, virtual tie between first and second with uh, the uh, the conservatives and the liberals. Um, at the end of the day, uh, where, do, where do we go with this? How do you see this moving forward? Is it going to stay the same? Are you surprised the the uh, debate didn't somehow push some sort of shift in the polls? Well, you and I both talked about that debate. We both watched that debate. And it was difficult for anybody to break through. So as a result, yes, there were, some, um, there were a couple good one-liners that people got off. But other than that, from a policy perspective, it was hard to do. So is this so, status quo just like it was prior to the debate? Yeah. yeah Everything's I the same. same. I, th- I think that a lot of people are going to be walking into the voting booth sitting there with pencil in hand and the ballot in front of them and wondering who they're going to vote for and make a decision there. So that uh, percentage of undecided is 
still a very, very important percentage. And, and, you know, depending where they're located, that's where politicians are starting to concentrate their campaigns. And, and you know, we're going to see that. We're going to see a, a definitive pattern happening um, in the last two weeks where certain politicians are going to show up. And you'll know that those are the, those are the specific voices and, and votes that they are asking for. Uh, we've seen uh, when we were talking, and we may have mentioned this after the after the debate, prior to the campaign starting, um, uh, or even as as the campaign started and things started to get momentum, there was chatter about how the Greens were making huge inroads. You spoke of that earlier, and, and overtaking the NDP. It seems though, in the last couple of weeks, uh, whether it's with the blackface issue or or the cutting off of the turban line, or even the way that Jagmeet Singh handled himself. Uh, during the the debate that he, and as you mentioned, with the younger people, he certainly seems to be gaining momentum. Many are, are, aren't are convinced that that will translate into votes, but is there enough there to make the prime minister concerned? Will this, will this split the vote on the left? Um, yes, I think it would, because those progressive votes, they might go liberal because they, well, that's what they did last time, right? They went for uh, Justin Trudeau. But now you have a lot of different voices that are gaining traction. And, you know, Jugmeet Singh, is Jugmeet Singh the cool guy in this campaign now where yeah, it was Trudeau last time? He is, he is the cool guy. And the issue is, is that, yeah, there are a lot of people who would like to see a socialist country, but I think there are more people who would like not to see it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Jagmeet Singh, I mean, if anybody has broken through, has broken through as a personality, it's Jagmeet Singh. Mm-hmm. And you have to give the guy credit because yep. before this election, I mean, listen, they don't even have a candidate. They don't even have a candidate running in New Brunswick because they were busy vetting everybody six ways to Sunday, which there's nothing wrong with. But there is something wrong when you're coming up, you know, the ridge is dropped and you have nobody in New Brunswick. And all those NDP candidates went green. So, you know, he really was behind the eight ball. And what he had to do was get out in front of it. And he has. You know, his machine behind him, I don't think, is as powerful as the liberal machine nor as the conservative machine. And I think in many cases, he's really very much a one-man band. I don't even think they have a plane. They have raised enough money even to get a a plane. He's doing this all by bus. He's riding shotgun on the second Trudeau plane. Oh, he is. Yeah, he's in the tickle trunk. Okay. He's yeah. in the he's he's in the tickle trunk with a pirate outfit. Um, you know, many have said this, and, and and maybe this is picking on the NDP too much. But just like Jack Layton, Jugmeet Singh would have way more success if he was a liberal rather than an NDPer. Well, 100%. And I mean, you know, Jugmeet Singh talks about dental care for all. He talks about you know pharmacare and. I, the only thing I want to know is where are you getting all this money from? And yeah, it's that whole NDP socialist thing that yeah. scares people. Well, and that's what scared people off of Andrea Horvath. Yep. She tried to couch it differently, as you recall, Scott. She would say, we're just asking you to give a little bit more. Well, yeah. how much more of my paycheck would you like, yeah, Andrea? Yeah. So, and, and this is the same thing. You know, we I, I agree. Everybody should be able to get their teeth looked after. But if you haven't figured out, you under, you have told us how much it's going to cost. But if you haven't figured out how you're going to pay for it without taking out more of taxes, then, you know, the other side of the equation will ultimately be your downfall. When we were watching the provincial election here way back when and Kathleen Wynne was premier, uh, especially during the last few weeks, 
of uh, before the election, we just saw uh, the liberals continually moving left and farther left and farther left and farther left with the sole purpose of cutting off the NDP at the pass and literally stealing things out of their shopping cart. Are we seeing the same thing? Will we see the same thing from Justin Trudeau? Um, uh, uh, Singh has come out and said, you know, cutting the... uh, uh, interest on on university debt, this sort of thing. Uh, is he just going to start? I remember he did the same thing last uh, election with bringing back super mailboxes. The NDP said they were going to bring back home mail delivery. The NDP said they were going to bring back home mail delivery. And Trudeau said, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that too. And then, of course, he got elected and then had to walk it back. Well, I think that right now certain politicians, i.e. those in the lead, will be saying just about anything to make sure that they get back into power. Because remember, Scott, what what is the job of any party leader? To make sure that their club is in power, that they're elected. So do I think that Trudeau – I think it all depends what the polling is saying. So if the polling is saying that people are looking for more left-leaning policies, he just might go that way knowing full well he's going to walk it back on day two. Um, I think it all depends on the polling, and I think it all depends where he's showing up in the country. So it was kind of interesting, right after the debate, Trudeau went up to um, Nunavut. Yeah. And I thought, what a great place to go. It's perfect. There's very few media. Yes, there's media that will follow you on the plane. But, you know, by and large, it's kind of like a safer place than putting yourself smack dab in a major city. Is that Jerry Butts at the control? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, this is, listen, things can be laid out. The best laid plans can always be turned around. And in politics, I think that happens every hour on the hour or every minute on the minute. And you have to react to things very, very quickly. If you have the resources to do that, you can do it. And if you don't have the resources, you just sort of have to plot along. All right, let's. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you about this Matt Lauer story. Uh, this isn't a new allegation. This, these are the allegations that I understood, uh, understand got him fired. I'll read you a piece uh, uh, from this. On Wednesday morning, today show hosts pause for the uh, pause the program to address a new report of sexual assault allegations against their former NBC anchor Matt Lauer, as detailed in a passion a, pas- a passage from Rowan Farrow's new book, Catch and Kill. We are disturbed uh, to our core, said the host. Variety was the first to report on the passage from the book that states Brooke Nevels, a former NBC employee, uh, alleges Matt Lauer anally raped her in a hotel room at the 2014 Sochi Olympics. Nevels' complaint to NBC at the time led to Lauer's firing from today in 2017, but her identity and details of the complaint have been remained uh, confident uh, confidentiality until now. Um, your thoughts on this? Uh, I'm not sure it does anything more for Matt Lauer other than it confirms what what he had done. What does this do for the Me Too movement? Does this bring this discussion all back? Yes, it does. And it is a substantiated uh, case. So therefore, I don't know if they're going to find too many inconsistencies in it. And Ronan Farrow has been on the case, all of these cases, for a number of years. So he is a credible source. Um, you know, I think that people say that the Me Too movement has suffered you know, certain setbacks, and sometimes it takes these really high-profile cases to bring it back to the fore. But what I think that the Me Too movement has done successfully is that it has empowered women to say, and it sounds very simple, but obviously it still doesn't work, that no means no. Whether you are sober, whether you are inebriated, mm. it doesn't give anybody the right to take advantage of you. And if that helps one woman say that I don't like the way I'm being treated, 
then the Me Too movement has worked. You know, every movement has its up and downs. And people can certainly give lots of examples on both sides for Me Too. This latest example, which harkens back to the reason that Matt Lauer was fired in the first place, uh, you know, I can't see him going anywhere else in his career. I mean, honestly, if I was Matt Lauer, I'd be wondering what my next move was other than continue hiding out in the Hamptons. Really, uh, I I can't see him. And I did read in certain places that maybe he was sniffing around looking for another network job, but that will obviously not be the case. So I think that that will keep him really underground for the next year or two. Uh, I think in order for him to ever be forgiven that he has to do the work. And, you know, the gentlemen who have been, well, they're not really gentlemen, men who have been caught under Me Too and, you know, think that they can come back after just laying low Mm. after a year or two, I have news for you. You need to do the work. You need to show that you've got undergone counseling. You need to show that you have actually done work on yourself uh, in order to help yourself out 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 of a problem. Does this change the story now that we know the details and we now know more about it, about what happened to him, or is this just confirmation of? Um, I don't think it changes the story. I think it um, underscores the story, and I think that if anybody was wondering, it certainly absolutely puts a pin in it as to that, you know, this really happened and he really was this awful guy. Um, What happened to this reporter, and she's still an active reporter on NBC, is, is horrific. I mean, it really, really is. What do you think about her coming out and saying all this? Because it's been done, he's been dealt with. Incredible amount of courage to do this at this point. Well, it certainly is. And I, and I kind of wonder, you know, you know, obviously she didn't sign an NDA, so, and she refused to sign an NDA in order to be quiet about this. Maybe she said that she'd be quiet for a certain amount of time, but then this would all eventually come to the fore. And you have to be extremely brave. You know, honestly, she will suffer as many, as much, um, uh, people will come after her yeah. as well as they will congratulate her. Yep, very so true. So it's, mm. re- it's really, really a double-edged sword for her. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.